What's that watermelon doing there? I'll I'll tell you later. Okay. Calling all Blue Blazer regulars. Hello and welcome to the Silver Screen Podcast, a regular episodic look at movies. I'm your host, DK. Now, this episode is a little different from our usual ones. It's the, hopefully, first in a new series when we invite our guests to take a look at a cult classic. Now, some would say beloved, some would say a candidate for the next series of MST3K, and some would rather just pretend they didn't exist at all. Regardless, we here at Silver Screen have never been one to shy away from a challenge, and we hope to have some laughs along the way. Now, once again, I'd like to extend a fist bump to our regular listeners. Thanks for coming back. And a warm embrace to anyone joining us for the first time today. I promise our usual episodes are a little less chaotic than this, or a little more chaotic, depending on your point of view. And if any of you out there, old and new, enjoy yourselves, please like, subscribe, and tell your friends. Now, because this is a new format, we're still finding our feet, so some things will remain the same, some will change slightly, and this could alter depending on the episode. So please bear with us while it goes forward. It's still very much a trial and error. The important thing is my guest and I, and hopefully you out there, have fun and want to come back. Besides, with the movie we're looking at today, what better way to celebrate than one of the hard-to-follow chaotic mess? And speaking of guests, we've got two brand new faces here with us today for this inaugural episode. We thought with it being a new format, what better way to celebrate than with a couple of silver screen virgins? So our first guest today is Nigel. How are you doing, fella? I am good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, not too bad. If the company, if the technology holds up, I'll be just peachy. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I think I describe myself as a as a very aging geek. Um, I love <laughs> we all, mate. Strange, yeah. Um, I like to keep busy. I like to keep creative. But yeah, first time for doing one of these, um, and I'm really looking forward to it. To be honest, nice one. Hopefully, it's not the last. What would you say? How would you say your movie knowledge is? On certain movies, I would say it's pretty good, if I'm honest. Uh, in other movies, they're <laughs> maybe not quite as good. Uh, let's see today on this. On this, my hopes are not high. <laughs> it's Buckaroo Banzai, mate. I'm not sure if anybody's hopes are that high. <laughs> Correct. That's the. Yeah. Have you got a? Uh, do you have a favourite genre or a favourite particular movie? Anything. I guess, particularly old school sci-fi, I absolutely adore. Anything John Carpenter, I tend to love. Any sci-fi or giant monster movie from the 50s, I absolutely love. Um, and I just, I always look back to those days when I would sit up late at my mum and dad's house watching the things that were on BBC Two or Channel 4 late at night with great fondness. And uh, yeah, that's where my, I guess my film collection lies old sci-fi, old horror, anything like that that stirs my imagination, I absolutely adore. Nice one. I'm guessing that's, that's that explains your uh, kaiju whisperer name and your avatar then, yeah? Either that or I'm just some old monster. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Angela? How are you doing today? Fellow I'm all right, timer. thank you. Um, I'm getting excited because I'm going away shortly, so that's going to be fun. Um, nice. nice one. Yeah, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, for complete transparency for the listeners, DK and I did actually used to work together a long time ago. I'll not say where because it gives flashbacks, you know, PTSD, <laughs> all that. Um, I'm, I'm similarly a ageing geek, 
I was one of those rare female geeks when I was growing up. Uh, basically brought up watching things like Doctor Who in the days of Tom Baker and Pete Davidson, so that ages me. Um, and original Star Trek and Star Wars, obviously. Nice one. And uh, to ask the same question, you know, that I asked Nigel, do you have any particular favourites, any particular genre or any movie that stands out for you? I, I definitely prefer science fiction over most others, uh, but I do like a good thriller. So things like the Jason Bourne series, stuff like that, I also enjoy. Blokey yeah. stuff. If you give me a rom-com, I'll turn off and run away screaming. <laughs> no worries. Right, and how are you both today? You're looking forward to what's to come? Very much it's so. It's going to be an adventure. Definitely. Well, don't worry, there's nothing to be scared of. We try and go for a relaxed atmosphere, and at the end of the day, if we do screw up, my capable co-host and editor, Mike, will sort that out. You know that, Mike? There's a fiver in it for you? Right. I think you might need more than a fiver today. <laughs> <laughs> right, you ready to go? Yep. Fantastic. Now, first episode today looks at 80s classic, in inverted commas, The Adventures of Bukuru Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Now, Bookaroo Bonsai came into development when uh, E.M. Roach took screenwriter W.D. Richter upon his offer of visiting him in Los Angeles. The two men had struck up a friendship some years earlier when Richter's wife had discovered Roach's debut novel, leading the two men to strike up a correspondence. Now, while in Los Angeles, Roach told Richter about a new character he'd come up with, inspired by kung fu characters of the early 70s, Bookaroo Bandy. Richter proceeded to loan Roach some money to develop a script based on the character, and Roach got to work. Over the course of about a dozen drafts, which saw the lead character's name change from Bandy to Banzai, Roach completed a 60-page treatment, Lepers from Saturn, for the newly formed Frank Marshall and Neil Canton production company. The script was shot around Hollywood, eventually finding its way into the hands of David Begelman, who then sold the screenplay to 20th Century Fox, with a project greenlit on a budget of $12 million. Casting took place shortly afterwards, and principal photography began in September 83, running for 12 weeks, primarily around the Southgate area of Los Angeles, with Richter handling directing duties. The film opened on uh, August 10th, 1984, and unfortunately, against such hits as Ghostbusters and Trek 3 The Search for Spark, it didn't really stand a chance. The promotion team literally didn't have any idea how to market it, and despite the enthusiasm of those involved in the production, the movie bombed, both critically, with the critics at the time describing it as unintelligible, and commercially, making less than half of its production cost back. Over the years, however, it's attracted a fiercely loyal cult following. The Guardian has it listed as one of the thousand films to see before you die, while Entertainment Weekly has it listed in both their top 50 cult movies and top 25 cult list. W.D. Richter is quoted as saying, it has the most dramatic reactions of anything I've worked on. Some loathe it, and others are willing to die for it. Which brings us here to our discussion, which I've got a feeling will cover both ends of that spectrum. Now, because you two were both, you know, like me, aging geeks, as you self-described, you were both moviegoers around that time. Were you aware of the film, or were your theatre-going experiences taking you in a different direction? I mean, 84... Pretty big year for movies, as well as the two I've mentioned. It also gave us the Dune adaptation, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Terminator, Gremlins, Starman, 
Never Ending Story, Police Academy, A Romance in the Stone, Nightmare on Elm Street, Belial's Cop. And, you know, that's just naming for a few. It was quite a big year, obviously. What uh, what would have been on your guys' theatre ticket back then? What do you remember about that year? Go on, Angela, after you. Um, I remember taking my younger brother to see The Never Ending Story. And, yeah, but my preferences were obviously Terminator and uh, Indiana Jones. Nice. And no, I'd never heard of Buckaroo Banzai, even until basically you told me about it a few weeks ago. And yes, well, we'll come to that later. It, you've never come across it up until then, not even like saying in adverts or on lists or anything like that? No, not oh, that wow. I can recall. You are a virgin with this, aren't you? Yep. <laughs> what about you, Nige? Um <clears throat> Well, he certainly wasn't on my... Uh on my sort of cinema list at the time. And it was such a crazy time around then for for our sort of films. There were so many, like you've just said, that you were kind of must-see movies. And the only thing I recall about Buckaroo Banzai, I believe was seeing it as adverted in comics. I'm sure yeah. I saw in various American comics adverts for it, never really seeing it. I don't recall ever seeing it listed at a cinema. Um, and I certainly didn't see it until quite much later, you know, several years ago now, but it, it definitely wasn't on my must-see films of the day, that's for sure. How many years ago did you think you saw it for the first time? First time was probably about, uh, probably maybe seven, eight years ago, something like that. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty much when I first encountered it. I mean, I'd seen it advertised, like you said, in, in all Marvel comics at the time. But uh, it never really stuck on my radar. And then I just saw it and I thought, oh, you know, I'll give it a go. Yeah. And it's a shame because if you look at, say, the cinema poster for the film, it's wonderful. It's like a classic old cinema poster. It's it's beautifully designed. It's everything you want. But you just didn't – it just didn't seem to get the marketing. Like you said, I just don't think they knew what to do with it. No. I, I remember the interview Dirt. Excuse me. They interviewed John Lithgow at the time, and he was really enthusiastic about it. But he would say in interviews, you know, have you got an hour for me to explain it to you? Mm. Yeah. I think there's an old anecdote on one of the reviews um, on this one of the Blu-rays that's available at the moment in which they're talking to Pete Weller, who I think is fantastic in the film, I have to be honest. Um, and he said the marketing people came to him and said, what do we do with this film? Yeah. kind of tells you exactly where the student <laughs> in terms of the film. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if you've seen the documentary In Search of Tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they, they did a little section on Buckaroo Banzai, and everybody on that documentary were like, what's it about? I don't know. And Peter Weller's like saying, if you can tell me what it's about, I'll give you real money. <laughs> Yeah, that's about right, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> now, I should state that with being a slightly different format for an episode, the plan was to try and interject some quotes here, both from those that may have had a close connection to the movie and any audience impression via audio clips. We, we, we have got a response section that will come later, but we asked for audio clips. But despite our reaching out, we got zero takers. I'm not sure if that's a sign of people's thoughts on the thing or just general apathy. 
But as I said earlier, it's first in a series, trial and error. So these things are expected. So hopefully as we move forward, we'll be able to introduce more of these elements as we go. And you can expect a little more of the unexpected in the future. Apropos of this, with it being our premiere episode, I'd like to ask our guests a question out of left field. What do they think, in their opinion, defines a cult movie to them? Do you consider it a legitimate phenomenon? Or is it just our personal way of giving importance to movies that we feel a connection to, but perform poorly at the box office? Do you think it's our way of hand-waving reality just because we like it? Angela, would you like to go first? I'm trying to think about how I would describe that, to be honest with you. Um, generally, when something's called cults, especially if I'm thinking about music terms, it means that it's not uh, popular in the mainstream. So it's not one that would get millions upon millions of dollars or pounds, whatever. But there is a loyal following uh, that still generates quite a, a bit of... Um, revenue you know and lots of well it's like marmite you either love it or loathe it yeah i, th I mean I, th I mean when you look at it you do get some of these niche things that kind of break out and score massive financial success when you look at you know aforementioned ghostbusters and things like robocop they do well uh and they have a but they still got that kind of niche cult following i'm just wondering if you know i mean do you have any cult favourites yourself, what you would term? Uh, well, sci-fi-wise, obviously Firefly would be right up there. Yeah. That is what... Or, or Babylon 5, that would also be classed as a cult. Uh, as I say, it doesn't have the same level of popularity as Star Wars and Star Trek and the other franchises like that, but it does have a very loyal fan base. And that yeah. is what I would say determines a cult movie or show that's fair enough what about you Nigel? um i think in terms of cult movies most cult movies tend to be in this type of genre it's a horror film it's a sci-fi film in general from what i know of them they all seem to basically do poorly and don't get a much of an audience initially but i think the one thing that they often have in common in fact two things they're often ahead of the time. The the way the film is both filmed, the script, even sometimes the dialogue is often really different for that period that people find really confusing. But what it also has is it has a certain rewatchability. So one of the things that I pick up from watching this recently is every time I watch this film, I can glean something different from it. There's, yeah. there's so much rewatchability to this, and it's a hard watch first time. It is a what the hell is going off? Well, you can understand why it bombs, but it has this thing where you can watch it again and you go, oh, I do love this bit, I do love that bit, and it grows every time you watch it. That's what I take from it. And while it's not one of my favorite films, I think most cult movies for me tend to be a little like that. They have something there that maybe the audience at the time didn't get, didn't understand, but by persevering with the film, a kind of quality comes out of it. Like a Big Trouble in Little China or something like this. Oh, definitely. Time, for whatever reason. And yet, it's a superb film that's just so watchable. Yeah, definitely. I mean, have you? Have you? obviously, you've got your, uh, your kaiju there as your avatar. 
So uh-huh. you're obviously into what what we over here would call cult movies, even though they're you know obviously much more popular in the rest of the of the world. Do you have anything over here other than Big Trouble that you would consider, you know, a favourite? It just it was where would you just where would I even begin to <laughs> sort of list them all? There's so many. Whether it's certain Japanese movies that somebody like Arrow are releasing, so like the Yokai Monsters series, the Daimajin series that are just incredible films that very few people over here know about um or whether it's even something like 1954's then the giant ant movie oh god yeah great film even though it was a huge success at the time kind of died a quick death after that people didn't realize you know forgot about it but it's still got that following now and it keeps getting reissues which tells you that whenever it's put out somebody must be buying it yeah, gets time and time again. Yeah, there's still a market for these things so many years later. Yeah. Nice one. I'm uh, I'm sure we could talk for hours about favourite movies, but as you know, we're here to talk about one in particular. And while we'll get to discuss our thoughts on it shortly, as our regular listeners will no doubt know, it's time for us to take a little look behind the scenes. And some really fascinating stuff on this one. I will say, however... For anyone out there who hasn't seen it, this will contain spoilers as much as they are. So if you don't want to hear, I suggest skipping ahead a few minutes. So without further ado, uh, let's go behind the scenes. And yeah, we've got music now. Can you guys hear me all right? Yes. Nice one. Now, I've been researching this movie and uh, apparently both Michael Keaton and Tom Hanks were considered for the role of Buckaroo as the studio wanted a recognisable star. Director W.D. Richter, however, wanted a relative unknown that would embody the character. Impressed by Peter Wells' performance in Shoot the Man, Richter met with Weller and had to convince him to appear as well as was unsure of the tone of the movie, and to obviously some extent still is. While not a hit at the time, it proved a springboard for Weller, who went on to star in the sci-fi hit Robocop. Still acts, but in a case of life imitating art, Weller is also an accomplished musician who continues to play the trumpet and sing, often performing alongside fellow Banzai actor and friend Jeff Goldblum, as well as recently becoming Dr. Peter Weller, as he's got a PhD in Renaissance art and is an adjunct professor at Syracuse University. Now, Lithgow's outrageous accent in the movie is down to Roberto Terminelli, a tailor on the MGM studio lot who had a thick Italian accent. Lithgow had the man speak his lines into a tape recorder, which he studied in order to achieve Rosado's final accent. Terminelli was credited in the movie as Lithgow's dialogue coach, while the first scene shot between Lithgow and Weller had to have several retakes. Despite being a torture scene, it was the first time Weller had heard Lithgow's accent and couldn't stop laughing. Although the president was played by Ron Glacey, better known to cinema-going audiences than Nazi Tote in 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark, Charles Workman provided the voice as Lacey had issues with his throat during filming. Now, one-time head of MGM UA and head of Sherwood Productions, David Bedelman, was known during production for his interference. The original director of photography on the movie was Jordan Cronenworth, who also worked on Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Bit of a difference in styles, no? Well, that's because against the wishes of the crew, Begelman fired Cronenworth and replaced him with Fred J. Conencamp, replacing the colours and textures originally envisaged with a flat 2D campy vibe, which is not what the filmmakers had intended. The only scene to remain fully intact from Cronenworth is the nightclub scene. 
Now, despite the teaser at the end credits that Buckaroo Banzai against the World Crime League, Begelman was adamant that the movie would be the only one made. The named leader of the league, Hanoi Shan, was referenced several times in the script, but all were removed on the demand of Begelman so that no foreshadowing took place for a movie that would never come. This included a scene at the beginning of the movie where Banzai's mother, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is killed by Shan. Curtis is not missing completely, however, as a picture of her can still be seen on the dashboard of the rocket car. Now, there was a theory circulated by fans for several years afterwards that the script for the World Crime League had been retooled into the script for John Carpenter's 86 cult classic Big Trouble in Little China. This has since been debunked as nutty by those involved in the last production. While Richter's involvement may have seen some influences from his time directing Banzai inadvertently touch upon his draft of the Big Trouble screenplay, the script has nothing to do with Banzai's story. Now, as I mentioned, and you've no doubt gathered, Begelman was known for his continual interference during the initial stages of production, constantly sending notes to the production team demanding changes. To all intents and purposes, he was the bane of the production. However, as it went on, the notes became less and less frequent, to the point where as production was nearing its end, the crew became convinced that Begelman had checked out. To test this theory, they included the scene where a watermelon is discussed. When nothing was heard from the exec, the crew concluded that he'd indeed just given up trying to rein in the production and took it as a sign that they could pretty much do whatever they wanted at that point. The end credit sequence, in which the cast is seen walking in front of the Sepulveda Dam in the LA riverbed, was filmed before Michael Bodica's music was completed, so the cast was actually walking in real time along to Billy Joel's Uptown Girl. Now, there appear to be a few fans of the movie behind the scenes in the Star Trek universe. The oscillation over thruster was seen not only in the Next Generation episode Pen Pals, but also in the cockpit of Zephyr and Cochran's ship The Phoenix in the movie First Contact. Yo-Yo Dime Proportion Systems has an office on the promenade of Deep Space Nine. Michael Okuda, Star Trek designer, inventor of Okudagrams and co-author of the Star Trek Encyclopedia, listed it as one of his favourite movies. Well, it appears that Nilo Rodis Gemero, VFX art director on Star Trek 3-6 and designer of the Excelsior is also a fan. The dedication placard the Enterprise may read where no man has gone before, but the Excelsior's corresponding dedication reads, no matter where you go, there you are. And finally, there have been a couple of attempts at a reboot over the years, including a late 90s attempt at a TV pilot that didn't get picked up. And again in 2016 when Kevin Smith tried to resurrect the franchise. Smith later left the project when MGM filed a lawsuit against the character's original creators. This legal wrangling has plagued the franchise for decades, with copyright issues being at the centre of the issue, but even after the movie had achieved cult status, a sequel was a no-go. However, despite the hopes of a generation being dashed by a promised sequel that never came, Blue Blazer Regular's prayers were finally answered in 2021 when Dark Cross Comics finally released the sequel in novel form by original creator and writer Ian Roach. So that's what I've got. Do you, any of you guys have anything that you picked up while looking at the movie? I mean, Nigel, I know you spent a little while looking into uh, what went on behind the scenes. Have you got anything from your perusal of supplemental material you'd like to add that uh, you think the audience might find interesting? It's just that uh, it's almost just like a who's who of, of the film industry sometimes when you look at 
who's in it or who's associated with it. Um, I don't have any particular facts I think I can throw it. I mean, there's people like Alan Howarth, who's quite famous for doing the John Carpenter scores with Carpenter, and he's been responsible for doing the sound effects for the Eighth Dimension. Um, like you said, the, the, some of the facts, not necessarily, but it's it's just one of those that as you look through the credits and you, if you have the physical media, uh, Arrow did a wonderful release on Blu-ray of this and there's a wonderful commentary on there with the, I believe, the director and the writer. It is the most fascinating, batshit crazy commentary I've ever listened to. <laughs> I don't think they realised they've been recorded at times. Certainly one of them wasn't. He's just a bit out there. And it's a fascinating listen that if you do get chance, I would highly recommend listening to that. It's a strange conversation. It, it really is. And it gives you a little bit of a, I guess, a, a view on the people involved with the film. It maybe explains why some of the film is like it is. Oh, I've not listened to that. I'm definitely going to have to give that one a go because I've got the Arrow version, but I've not had a chance to check out the commentary as yet. You really must. I think another oh. point we said here about spoiler warning. Is this not the one of the only films in the world that's immune to spoilers? Because you can tell them whatever you want and they can watch the film and go, what? what? <laughs> I think it's immune that's to spoilers. Point, actually, yeah. It's just, it's just out there. It really is. It is. Now, normally after this section, we get straight into discussing the movie. However, if you've heard our Predator episode, and if you haven't, I highly recommend it, dodgy audio and all, you'll know we took a brief departure from the norm and instead invited our guests to take part in a little quiz to celebrate their first time on the show. And what do you know? It's both today's guest's first time on the show too. Congratulations, so... Angela. You've won. <laughs> <laughs> I very much doubt that. I've only watched this film twice. Oh, first no, it's... Time... it's, it's... It's, don't worry, it's not about Buckaroo Banzai. Oh, We're not okay. testing your knowledge on that. I, I know better than to do that at this point. Right. Although, one thing I will say about the... Uh, you were mentioning earlier. Uh, the comment... Um, sorry, the phrase, remember that no matter where you go, there you are. Yeah. If you're an Austin Powers fan, it's in there too. So I'm wondering if Mike Myers is uh, a fan of Buckaroo Banzai. Or oh, at least the script writers. Cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, I can't remember which one of the uh, Austin Powers films, but that struck me the first time I watched uh, Buckaroo. It was like, I know that quote. Ah, see, it's all pervasive, Angela. You've missed out on so much. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the comment. <laughs> right, so what we're going to do, we're going to have a little game. And this is, you know, bearing in mind the, uh, the technical side of things hold up. It's called Marquee Names. Now, in this round, both our guests are loitering in a theatre lobby, about to watch a mini festival on a certain actor. Which actor? Well, that's what they need to figure out. They'll each get five alternating rounds, each of which will feature a different movie star. As they wander around the virtual lobby at this festival, they'll get to view up to three movie posters with which they can guess the actor. The number of points they receive is dependent on how many posters they viewed. Guessing it on the first poster will earn them three points, the second poster two, and if they've got to wait until the reveal of the final poster to guess correctly, they get one point. Now, 
I'm going to load one up to show you. So if I were to show you this poster, and for the benefit of those at home, the movie poster is for the movie Cloud Atlas. So if I were to show you that, you might have some idea whose name is above you on the marquee. Okay. No. However, if I reveal the second poster, this works. Bear with me. Then it might. Can I do my guess clearer. now? Uh, you can do it. It's just a. This is just a, a temporary one. Do it, Angela. Do it. Just an example. I've got to say, Tom Hanks. See, in that you would be wrong. Oh. Okay. The second poster should be coming up now. So at this point, you're looking for an actor that features in both of these movies. Any ideas now? I've not watched that, so nope. Uh, no. Okay, so I'll bring up the uh, third and final one, which should make everything uh, actually clearer. And this is the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral. The previous poster, by the way, for those listening on audio, was Paddington 2. Can I, can I just ask a question? Being a, a bit of a, a sci-fi geek, is it important that I have seen these films? Because I have not no. seen any of these. <laughs> Am I on the wrong You've podcast? You've not seen Paddington 2? It's fantastic. It's I've not seen it either. So, <laughs> so any guesses? Mm. I I'm just trying to think. What about the guy that was in the um, King What's His Name film uh, where he played a member of the royal family? And I can't remember his name. Is he in Kingsman as well? That's who I was thinking of for some reason. Colin Firth? Might be Colin Firth, yes. It wasn't actually Colin Firth, believe it or not, it was Hugh Grant. Nope, I wouldn't have got that. <laughs> have, have either of you seen Cloud Atlas? Nope. I think I did, but it was a long time ago. It's not actually a bad movie. Hugh Grant is probably the least convincing one in there. That's why I thought it might ring a bell for anybody that's seen it. So... That's just the first round. That's just, you know, obviously to, to get you into the speed of things on how this is going to go. But if it's not anyone that, DK, can I just say, I think if anyone gets the right answer to that first time, they should lose points for clearly having watched Four Weddings and a Funeral on Paddington. <laughs> <laughs> I will confess at this point, I've still never seen it. I just was desperate for a third poster that featured <laughs> Okay. So, what we're going to do, we'll go in separate rounds. But as I was about to say, it's not that easy. You only get one guess. And while you can try and work it out, I will confirm your answer. If you fail to guess it correctly, you will lose that round and it gets handed over to your opponent who's got the chance to see all three posters before guessing. And if they guess correctly, they gain a point. So, be very careful. Some are easy. So have you just seen that? Some are not very easy at all. Depends on how confident you are with your guesses. And I'll tell you, I've had a go at some of these, and in my opinion, getting on the first poster is not bloody easy. So 
Right. Are we all clear on the rules? Is there anything I need to explain? I think so. Are each, are each person that we're trying to guess, are they a primary star within that film? Uh, not necessarily. They just need to be the common actor in the movies that are shown. Okay. All right. Now, question is, who's going to go first? You can either decide between yourselves or you can flip a coin if you're not sure. And Angela, you know, it has to be your choice whether you'd like to go first or second. Go on, I'll go first. Why not? Okay. Okay, then. And for the audience at home who's listening on audio, the poster is the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So mm. do you want have a guess or do you want to wait for the next poster? I'll wait. Okay. And again, for the audience at home, the poster is Transylvania 65000. So this is for two points, Angela. Mm, no, I'll wait for the third. Guess. The third? Okay. Mm -hmm. And here we have the movie poster, The Fly. Right. I will say Jeff Goldblum. It is Jeff Goldblum. So Woo. nice one. So that's one point. See? You're off, you're off to a decent start. Cool. Well done, Angela. Thank you. Right. Okay, so we're going to the next one now. And this, to me, is a difficult one, Nigel. So you've started off with a right Thanks, one. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. This poster is the poster for Back to the Future. Okay. <clears throat> uh, so remember, funny. if you're really guessing correctly, correctly, yeah, it will go to uh, Angela. Um, oh, I know I would like to guess. Um, go on, let's just. Oh, should I risk it or not? I feel like I'm on a quiz. I feel like I'm on like play your cards right or something at the moment. Higher, like lower. I'm asking the audience, should I risk it? Well, I think that you're probably <laughs> thinking of the same person I'm thinking of. I guess I might, I'll have to go with Christopher Lloyd. It's not Christopher Lloyd. That's what I was going to say. Sorry about that. that. Yeah, I would have been wrong okay. as well then. <laughs> <laughs> well, Angela's now got a chance to see uh, the other three posters, the other two posters, sorry. I think she accidentally saw one that. Uh, yeah, that, that one with Tom Cruise. With. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think I need to see the third poster. Okay, you, you're all right. You, you're confident that you've seen the second poster, which was again yeah. to the audience at home. All the right moves. Okay. It's a movie poster for Howard the Duck. Oh, flipping egg. You know, I've only watched that movie once. <laughs> once is enough. <laughs> that, that was more than plenty. Uh, you mean you didn't like duck boob jokes? What's wrong with you? Um, I've got a brain. 
sorry. <laughs> no. no, no. no uh, sorry to any Howard the Duck fans out there. Yeah. If the, sorry, it's just one not of one of my things. Um, no, I don't. So I can't even remember who was in that. Uh, I think I know what this will be, but I don't even know if I've got the name correct. Which sounds a bit of a strange thing to say, really, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to pass because I definitely can't remember who was in that. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Uh, Nigel, you won't get a point for it, but do you want to have a, a quick guess? That's, yeah. Is it, is it the, uh, the female actress? Is it something Thompson? It is. It's is Leah it? Thompson. Leah Thompson. Yeah. Leah, right. Leah Thompson. I, want to, I don't think I'd have got a first name. Yeah, How the Duck, one of your favourite movies, right? It it used to be. I've I've kind of <laughs> grown up a bit until I slated it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I will be honest. It was in my Marvel top ten simply because of the fond memories that it holds. Mm. <laughs> You're not convinced, are you? No. <laughs> right. Right, Angela. Okay. And this one is the movie poster for 2010. Oof. Great film. Again, I think I only saw that once. I, I do love this film. I, I'm, I'm proud to say I love this film. I prefer this to the uh, 2001. Do you know what, oh. mate? Me too. Mm. I'm going to have to respectfully disagree. So That's fair I'll enough. This, yeah, I'll need the second poster. Second poster, right. The second poster is Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Mm. So, again, it's the, the actor that is common to who, who appears in both uh, movies. I want to say, and I'm going to risk it, Malcolm McDowell. It's not Malcolm McDowell, I'm afraid, which means okay. Nigel gets the third yep. poster. And this one is Twilight Zone, the movie. Hmm. Um. Oh, that's throwing me. Uh. No, I know. I thought I knew most people that were in 2010, but I'm not associating them with that. Uh, I'm just going to say Lithgow. I don't know. It is John Lithgow. You got to <laughs> Yes. Someone went right. <laughs> well done. You don't. Thank you to yourself and there were no need. I had never seen the Planet of the Apes one. Uh, and I know he's got a small part in 2010, and he has that tiny part in Twilight Zone, doesn't he, in the car? It's uh, he, he takes William Shatner's role off on the Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, something on the wing. Oh, of course, in the oh, it's not the part we're thinking of, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I got even more lucky. <laughs> Are you were you thinking of Dan Aykroyd? I bet I was in the car, yeah. If you want to see something <laughs> scary. Yeah, I think Brooks. And for some reason, I'm thinking that's Lithgow in the car. 
Mm, you have to give that a rewatch. Just just avoid the John Landis section, mate. All right. <laughs> I do, right, I do so like that. It's a good film. Next one up for you, mate. Mm-hmm. And it's the poster for the movie The Fourth Kind. Never even heard of it. No? Oh, it's a decent film. Never I recommend it. Never even heard of it. Can I can you infer from that that I may need another poster? Yeah, it's it, it's kind of coming through, so I'm lining that second <laughs> one up now. Your second poster is I'm not sure if you know this one. It is for the movie Cuffs. Hmm. No, I don't know that. Um I'm just trying to think if I know anyone that's uh no. No, I'm gonna to have to have the last one, I'm afraid. The last one, no problem. Your last poster is coming up now. And it is the fifth element. Oh um I think everyone in the world has seen Fifth Element, haven't they? Um, who would associate those? Let's let's say, well, we'll go with the Oldman. No, it's not Oldman. Angela, you can have a guess and steal I, a point here. I have seen Cuffs and Fifth Element, so Miller Jovovich. That is correct. You've got another point. Woohoo! Nice one. <laughs> Right, so it's your go now, Angela. You ready? Okay. Back to the Future Part 2. Again, mm -hmm. a tricky one because of the number of people in that. So it's your mm -hmm. call whether you want to stick or go to the number two. Well, there's so many people in that one, I'm going to say let's go to number two. Okay. Now, the next one is a real niche cult one. So it's there is a chance that you might not have seen this one. This one is for the movie Piranha 3D. <laughs> no, I, I haven't watched that, oddly enough. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's go for number three. Number three, fair enough. <laughs> this one should give it away. I would hope to God it does anyway. Otherwise, this has just been the worst round on record. <laughs> the worst the quiz on record. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a movie poster, Adventures in Babysitting. I have not seen that or even heard of that. Really? Oh, wow. Really, really. Another, another 80s movie. So yeah, that puts I... it over you, Nigel. Any idea? Uh, genuinely, not got a clue. Adventures in Babysitting, I've never seen. I've only seen it advertised in comics again. Piranha 3D. God, I haven't seen that for probably so long. Um, no, I have no idea, dude. It was Elizabeth Shue. Yeah. I definitely wouldn't have got that. No, me neither. No. All right. Fair enough. Okay. Right, Nigel, you're up with another tricky one. And this is a movie poster for 
Back to the Future 3. I'm spotting a trend here. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking the same. Maybe I, I wish I'd watched these films a little bit more than I have. Um, uh, no. I, uh, I'm, I'm, no. I'm not going to guess that yet. No worries. Number two, then. This one is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Absolute classic. Well, that's... Oh, is it sure? Oh, it's... Uh, mm, I, I think I have to guess, don't I, again? I, I'm going to go... Oh, this is too obvious, but I'm going to go Christopher Lloyd. It is Christopher Lloyd. Oh, I thought that was too well obvious. Done. You got it, man. <laughs> no, no. The uh, the next one in that uh, the the third poster would have been the Adams family. So, oh, that would have cinched it. Right. Yeah. You ready, Angela? Yeah. As ready as I'll ever be. All right, here we go. And this one is for the movie Starship Troopers. Okay. Do you want to guess, or do you I want the second one? I'll take the second one. Okay. I know what I would guess with this already. Well, you might have a chance at some point. We will see. Not that Angela's going to get it wrong, of course. This is for the movie Shawshank Redemption. Ooh. Change my what I think it will be, but I think I know this one. Oh, go on with the next one, Foley. Okay. If you don't get it on this one, your nerd card's revoked. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> this one, if it should it ever load. It's for the movie Highlander. Yeah. Oh, God. There's so many different actors to choose from. Ah. Just remember, you're going through the one that appears in all three. Yeah. Oh, flipping heck. Ah. can see some of the faces, but it's... No, I think we're going to have to revoke my card. <laughs> that leaves it on to you, Nigel. That has to be Clancy Brown. It is Clancy Brown. Yeah, it's got to be, yeah. Who is great? Nice one. So that just... is really good in the film. You've... Uh... You've you've snuck ahead on the scores there, Nigel. It's over to you now. You ready? Yeah, go for it. Okay. War games. Ooh. Uh, ooh. I love war games. Um, <clears throat> oh, but do I just... Do I just have a guess? 
Um, no, go on, give me another one. I'll fail yeah, on the second one rather than on the first. <laughs> okay, and this one coming up now is The Breakfast Club. It's Ali Sheedy. It is Ali Sheedy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah that's who I would have said. Well done. Her or him. Yeah. Nice one. And just for, you know, in case of any doubt, the third one would have been Short Circuit. Oh, okay, Angela. Okay. Seen that once. This is your final round, all right? Okay. It's for the movie Leviathan. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any ideas? Or do you want the second one? I'll ask for the second one, but I do have a nice, a possible idea, yeah. Okay. This one is for the movie Naked Lunch. Hmm. <laughs> Don't know if I've seen that before. You know what? I'm just going to make a guess based on the first one. Peter Weller. Yay! It's it, going to be. It is Peter Weller. Nice one. What's up? The third oh, one for... Uh, yeah, it's the third one for any doubt would have been Robocop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, strangely, I, so, I, I purchased Leviathan on Blu-ray recently and I ordered only the other day Naked Lunch. All right, it's been a, it's been a few years since I've seen Naked Lunch. Yeah, it looks fascinating. I could it's never get quite past Julian Sanzak. Right, this is your final round, Nigel. You ready? Mm -hmm. Yeah, go for it. It's Iron Man. Mm -hmm. Oh, which one would you go from those? Uh... Um, go on, let, let's wait until the next one. You sure? Uh, okay. Right, yeah. this, one's this one is for the movie Tideland. Tideland, it has to be Jeff Bridges then. It is Jeff Bridges. Nice yeah. one, fella. So, obviously, you've told me that the both of you got around to watching the film recently, yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. So, we'll get specifics in a moment. But bearing in mind it's an 80s movie, does it hold up in 2022, in your opinion? To, uh, you know, paraphrase a certain gladiator, were you not entertained? Um, well, I think you already know my answer because about, what was it, five, ten minutes into my first time watching it, I texted you going, what the actual fuck am I watching? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I told Nigel about that prior to recording. He found that quite amusing. Yeah. It, it, no. It didn't do it no. for me at all. It was, it, was, it was pretty bad. As I said to you, again, 
you know, in the messages, it makes early Doctor Who look good. <laughs> and, what, and what about you, Nige? I I find this a, a really interesting film. I I don't think it's necessarily the best made film or the most easily understood or the best watch, but it is really an interesting film. And it's one of those that I think if you can get through the first sitting and re-watch and watch more than most films out there, there are so many things to suddenly see that you may not have seen on your first or even your second watch that just make it a, a fascinating film. I, I really think it, I think it stands up in so many areas. There's things that I don't like about it, but I, I, I really, it, every time I watch it, and I'm not a massive fan initially, but every time I watch it, it, it grows a little bit more fonder in my memory and my mind. It's yeah. I, I, it's really starting to grow me now, this film. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll repeat it because obviously I said this to you, Nigel, before the recording started. Watching it this time, I mean, I, I was going to, obviously I look at it in a more favourable light than Angela, but watching it this time, it was even more favourable than the time before. It's definitely a grower, I think. I think it. I think it's clearly, a, it's, I think it's a very 20th century Fox film, like one of their sci-fi choices that they would make that they would seem to, in that period, throw money at. It, it has that feel to it. It, I think some of the look of the film is astonishingly good. Some of the special effects, some of the ship design, they're absolutely wonderful on this film. There are parts where you're on looking at certain scenes and you're thinking, well, have they just filmed this in somebody's garage? So there's yeah. parts where you suddenly see like a real drop in production levels, it feels. But there are so many things. If you listen carefully to even, even like the sirens in the factory towards the end where it's giving off warnings. That, that PA, I, 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 gonna, I mean, what we'll do, we'll get into specifics in, yeah. in a, little, a little while. I mean, you know, we'll look at different aspects. I mean, they'll have a tendency to run in each, into each other as we go. It's just the nature of the discussion. But we can jump back and forth as necessary. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll start off with acting. I mean, as I should profess this thing by saying that I took that many notes during the movie, my phone now has the correct spelling of John Big Booty burned into its predictive text. Big Booty? Yes. <laughs> it won't pick up most words, but it knows that. So, so we'll start with acting. So what have you guys got to say with regards to the acting? I mean... Obviously, it's got so many people in this that went on to, you know, bigger and better things, as it were. For some of them, this was the first movie outside of TV. Oof. I think they did incredibly well not to be cracking up every two seconds. Unless there are lots of uh, reels out there. Um, but yeah, uh, I think people like John Lithgow and Jeff Goldblum, Christopher Lloyd, you know, the character actors, they, their style was very evident, even when they were in mass. You could tell who was who. Yeah. Not just from the voices, but from the mannerisms and the way that they delivered the lines. So, yeah, the, the really good character actors, I'd say they... 
carried it basically for me. I do think Christopher Lloyd is one of the best performances in this. I like his quiet rage. It's as funny as it is frustrating. I mean, you were talking about where we used to work together, Angela. Yeah. And, you know, Christopher Lloyd in this puts that across that he's just surrounded by incompetence and he's just so done with John Lithgow's character's shit, especially yeah. towards the end of the movie. You know, when John Lithgow turns to him and says, you are the weakest individual I've ever known. And Christopher Lloyd doesn't say anything. He just flips him the bird. Yeah. <laughs> and then goes into that. He's not worth wasting any words on. Exactly. And then, just, you know, shortly after, he's just screaming at him saying, your overthruster is for shit. And has that meltdown over the pronunciation of his name. Yeah. What about I... you, Nigel? I mean, jump in whenever you want, dude. I just, yeah, well, I think... I think Peter Weller in this is brilliant. I think he's absolutely fantastic in this, but he's he's kind of fantastic in everything I see him in. I, I really like Weller in this. I think he's ever so good. Uh, John Lithgow, I hate. I absolutely hate how he how he interprets that character in this. It you think really doesn't work for me. It really doesn't work for me. I think Clancy Brown is fantastic in this. Goldblum. He's just Jeff Goldblum, isn't he? That's yeah. just he just plays himself in everything. It is. It's uh, like watching a Monday day Sean Connery with Jeff Goldblum. He's just Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, but I think for me, while Weller's fantastic, Lithgow is just the antithesis of that. He's it's so over the top, and I can I can understand why he would choose to do that, but it really doesn't work for me in this. I really don't like. Lithgow in this and I think he's fantastic in other things but yeah so I think it's it is a real mixed bag some of the acting is is bloody awful I think in places but some of it is is really really good and like you say it must be like Angela mentioned it must be quite difficult to working with the dialogue that you've got to work with in this film is, is to put across something that that kind of stands out in a way and I think it's one of the, the flaws of the film is that you've often got characters behaving quite differently that need to put on almost a different performance that somebody else's performance often clashes with. And I think it kind of hits the atmosphere a little bit. But, yeah, it's uh, it's. I feel it's a real mixed bag, this one. Yeah. There is a, a, a point where I think where they're in the compound and Jeff Goldblum, start, you know, going back to what Angela said, there's a point where Jeff Goldblum starts explaining something and Clancy Brown has to look down because he just looks to be on the verge of just cracking up. Yeah, I imagine that. I don't know if you noticed that. There's two or three, and on the commentary they mention times when people are cracking up and on various uh, behind-the-scenes things on the Blu-ray. There's, there's a lot where they're pointing out things like that. It must have been a strange film to work on. Yeah, you do get the impression that they were they were having fun while filming it, and I think regardless it. of the performance, it does come through. I, I get that kind of energy from it. Yeah, they loved it. They were having a blast. Nice one. I mean, Lewis Smith. I'm. I'm. I don't really know Lewis Smith as an actor, but I love Perfect Tommy. I mean, he came very close to being my favourite character for this. In a way, he's like a, a mirror of Big Boutet. Uh, I mean, a lot of the time, he doesn't seem to know what's going on. He seems as befuddled 
as everyone else what's going on around him and especially with Banzai's decisions sometimes you know sometimes to the point where he's throwing his hands up in the air especially when it comes to Penny but he still sticks by Banzai even with all the ribbing he receives it's yeah it's a quiet performance I suppose I think the favourite uh, the part where is it Banzai is going to let her out of jail and he says let her go give you a jacket yeah and he says why me because you're perfect yeah, it's like that. Oh, that's a good line. <laughs> that's actually my favourite line in this. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but everybody in this movie seems to be running in different directions. And out of all of them, which is what I mean, yes, John Lithgow is very, very over the top. But out of all of them, Ellen Barkin seems to be the most out there of all the protagonists. Yeah, her character didn't really make any sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's other than the fact that she's supposedly a clone of uh, Banzai's lost love or whatever, I don't know the complete backstory. I didn't really delve that far into it. Yeah, so obviously, she was put there to distract Bookaroo. But other than that, what was her purpose? See. The thing is, you don't because I mean I don't. You might know more, Nigel. We're watching all the background information. It's it's said at some point that she could be adopted, and she's the identical twin sister of Peggy, who was Queen of the Netherlands. And you don't know if that's just Banzai using a figure of speech, or if the character was actually Queen of the Netherlands. That's how batshit this script is. I think it's um, yeah. I I told myself early in this film. Don't overthink certain parts. It won't help. So I didn't. I just went, <laughs> I don't get that bit. Switch off. <laughs> I mean, there's some, there, there are some good performances, but as you say, there's some that just seem to be... It, 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 it is a very mixed bag, like you said. I mean, and it is a who's who of, of actors, basically, before they became big. I mean, you know, Carl Lumley, Robert Ito, Clancy Brown, Christopher Lloyd, then you've got Rosalind Cash, Dan Hedaya, you know, Ron Blasey, Matt Clark, Vincent Schiavelli, who's, you know, obviously the go-to weirdo when you want something that looks strange in a movie. Jonathan Banks. I mean, Jonathan Banks has made it big since then. I mean, you know, he's one of the primary cast in uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And, you know, here he is. He's just a little asylum worker that gets off in the first yeah. 10 minutes. It is. I just think it's, I, I always, whenever I watch this, I always think at certain times, I, I almost, it's almost like the, the actors are going in different directions in the same scene. Yeah. One's giving this sort of performance where the other one's giving a, a completely different type of performance. And sometimes it just doesn't gel. It, it doesn't help in terms of tension or atmosphere. It just sometimes it just doesn't work for me. That's fair enough. And what's, you know, I mean, it's, it's a very strange thing to have Jamie Lee Curtis as a cameo that appears in the first five minutes and then just cut her out anyway. I'm, I'm just wondering what the background was behind that. Obviously, I know about Begelman deciding to remove all references to, to Hanoi Shan out of it. But, you know, just having someone in, I'm just wondering how they actually got her to appear in it. There is a, I know there is a, an excerpt on one of the documentaries that, that does explain that, and I can't remember exactly why. But she, it was more of a happened to be about 
sort of situation. Um, I'm trying to think if she was actually seeing somebody at the time that was involved in the cast. So it was just a case of, oh, do you want to do this while you're here? And she kind of went, yeah, okay, cool. But then obviously it's not particularly important to the plot. The plot no. wasn't particularly important to the plot on this one. <laughs> there was a plot? <laughs> well, we're going to get to that in a sec, but I just thought I'd point out, I don't know if Angela know, knows, uh, Corey D. Williams, son of Billy D, was one of the Lectroids, Angela. Was he? Yeah. So he gets about a bit. He does. Yeah. The full but... master himself. <laughs> so with regards to acting is there anything else that stands out to either of you that, that we've not touched upon that you think you might want to bring up no I think you've pretty much covered it to, yes. say, the different styles just not making any sense in you know all in the same scene it's just you want to be able to understand the scene but when people are doing different things you ca just can't work out what the plot is, where the story's going, who's doing what and why. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, it takes us to the next section, which is the writing. And from, on my notes, anyway, it's the biggest section just because there's just so much going on. It's absolutely nuts. I mean, you've got this polymath character very much in the vein of, you know, pulp heroes like Doc Savage. You've got the Hong Kong Cavaliers who just to keep up with Banzai have got to be as versatile as he is. You've got interdimensional travel, mad scientists, invading aliens that come from one place but are found in another, a rapidly expanding group of players, factions within the aliens, Orson Welles tying it into War of the Worlds, a war game style subplot. I mean, it's a little wonder audiences, as well as those working on it, found it baffling. But in in in, in some respects, I kind of think that's part of its appeal. It, 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 it's sort of like a little puzzle box. I think it's with this film, it, it almost depends on how you're going in to watch it. So with some films, you literally, you want to sit down, popcorn film, take your brain out and go, yeah, entertain me. This doesn't do that for me. It doesn't, it's not really an entertaining film in the same sort of way. It's a film that you have to go, right, what were they thinking? And there's lots of charming little bits and really cool bits. You just can't figure it out. And it was clear that I think what comes across in the film is that the guys that wrote it, the guy that wrote it, um, it was clear that he'd been working on it for years. And it was yeah. almost, you could feel as if he'd gone, oh, I tell you what I could do. And he throws another bit in. And then he goes, oh, I, oh I've got another idea. Let me, and it's just evolved. You can almost imagine the script evolving over years and years. Yeah. And really what it could probably have done with is them to bring in somebody to go, could you do me a favor? Can you look at this screenplay? And they go, what the hell is this? Could you just like, could you just make it really concise and understandable, or or more understandable than it is at least? Yeah, uh, that I guess would have maybe made it a little bit more of a commercial success. But like you said, would it have lost some charm by doing that? I mean, I, th I think Richter's on on uh, record as saying that he, looking back at it, there are some scenes he would have liked to have put in to explain more of the plot you know i mean they do recognize that there is loose ends trailing everywhere in this and you know but and, and but you can't understand i mean earl matt roach he worked on scorsese's new york new york so it's he does have experience screenwriting it does come across though like that i mean there are just so many ideas in this and it would have been good had they just thought 
okay, dial it back a bit, if you know what I mean. It's almost as if they were thinking, right, well, if we set this up in film two, we could follow this or we could do this or we could. And then in film three, and it's like, whoa, guys, can we just get through film one? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it just feels like it was something that maybe it was, it was, it was their baby. And sometimes you've just got to give it to somebody else to go, can you just make sure this is okay? Yeah. And let them look at it and go, just boil it down to a bit more of the fundamentals to make it a bit more of an easy watch to garner a bigger audience that I think this is, this fails to do. It's, it's fascinating, but it's, it isn't an easy watch. Yeah. I mean, I will say that, that, as I said earlier, they've ended up doing a novel form of uh, Against the World Crime League. And your normal book, audio book, I've, I've downloaded it, ready to listen. I'm actually looking forward to it, listening to it after this. But I've downloaded it, and your average book length is between, what, 8 and 12 hours long. The World Crime League novel is 25 hours plus. So... <laughs> I, I'm just expecting more batshit crazy when I start on that. Mm. When I read the synopsis after you'd said which film we were going to be reviewing, I saw sci-fi comedy. I thought, right, I can just sit down, watch this and be entertained. I spent far too much time thinking, what the hell is going on? <laughs> you know, it, it just didn't make any sense whatsoever. It started out all right, you know, with the premise of interdimensional uh, travel. It's like, okay, I can get behind the science on this. But, oh, there are just too many subplots going on to make it an enjoyable popcorn movie. I think that's a, I think it's a pretty fair assessment. I mean, there are little references here and there. Uh, the the little lines such as when uh, John Parker's on the screen trying to explain to the president what's going on, the president picks up, you know, are you talking about a race war in New Jersey? And then later on, you've got that entire, that little speech from John Warfin where he's saying there are blacks here in New Jersey and, and you're not sure if they're trying to make some kind of point or if it's just dialogue that's in there because it's just in there and they're just throwing ideas at the wall if you know what i mean there's no there's no delineation between what is intended to be there and what could just be chucked against the wall if you know what i mean mm. i think yeah. it's a million miles away from making any sort of salient points it just it's not written well enough to do that for me i mean don't get me wrong at the end of the day, I still love it. And it, to me, it is like a puzzle box. It's, I mean, I, li I like I like this kind of thing that, you, as you said, Nigel, earlier, you can just watch it and each time you pick up a different point. Mm. And, this, and when you look at it, I mean, you can't say, well, I mean, you can say, obviously, because it's just like a, a, a script of extremes. There's so many quotable lines and yet so many kind of examples of bad dialogue. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, even, even as you were saying earlier, that's that I was saying, we get to that, even down to things like the PA in your your dine at the end. You know, there are monkey boys in this facility. Monkey boys are feeble. Work, work, work. And you don't really pick up on it the first time. Mm. I mean, but 
looking at the dialogue, I mean, there's some there's some really good lines in this, mm. you know, and, and they're all, and the thing is, they're all played deadly serious, despite for a lot of the time just being completely balmy, you mm. know. I'm a soldier. I'm a damn good one. I've got enough decorations to snap a Christmas tree. It's, I, I don't know. It's just, don't tug on that. You never know what it might be attached to. And the speech by Warfin at the end, and it is played serious, but it's just like, where are we going? Planet 10, when? Real soon. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, and I, I just like it. I just like a lot of the dialogue. Like when they're trying to get that message from John Endel using the you know bubble wrap masks, as it were. Oh gosh! And yeah, everything's happening, and Banzai just says, "Well, you know, well, everybody shut up just so I can hear this thing." And I don't know about you two, but it just feels very relatable because whenever I try and do something important or listen to something important, that's inevitably the moment where someone else walks in with something that's just really not important whatsoever. Yeah. I think that's one of the examples of the special effects in this film coming from classic Doctor Who. What are those masks? Oh, they are wearing? It's it's very it's I don't know it's very strange because when you look at the opening scene with regards to the rocket car and it going through the mountain, the special effects there are very much of that time of the early eighties, you know, and you've got the the electroids which are in an animated form, and I almost get a a Sam Raimi Evil Dead vibe. I don't mm -hmm. know how you two yeah. feel about that. And then, as you say, you're in that scene with the masks. And like Angela says, it, it, it is like someone's using the budget from a John Pertwee six-parter. Yeah. yeah. That definitely looked like bubble wrap or like yeah. a, a sheet of pill, um, you know, pill packs that have just been cut out and stuck together with tape. yeah uh, yeah it's just very very low budget it just looked, yeah well yeah and, in keeping with the actual style of the film but it just looked very very ridiculous to me yeah that, i think you're right that that particular scene the the mask that they're wearing looked really cheap but i think overall i think the film looks like it's i mean it's had money spent on it some of the effects or some of the rotoscoping is fantastic and it yeah. looks brilliant in high definition. It's clearly had a good budget. I would have liked to have seen if how it would have turned out had Crenenworth been kept on rather than being fired by Begelman, because I do think the nightclub scene does look a lot better than a lot of the 2D scenes that follow it. There is that kind of more of a richness. And, yeah, you could ascribe that down to it being inside with all the neon and stuff. But I'm just wondering, you know, what if? How would it have looked had the original guy been kept on? I mean, I'm not dissing Conan Camp, but when you look it's at Blade Runner and the stylistic yeah. aspects of that, and then you look at Bakru Bonsai, you know which one looks like more time's been spent on it, if you know what I mean. But yeah. the car bit at the beginning, like you said, that's a really cool-looking scene. It, it looks great, and that was by the new director. I think it's. I think overall, it's a great-looking film. I, I do think it just—it's a wonderfully-looking film, but it just has moments of. Did they run out of budget for this? Yeah. What happened there? Where is this filmed? Is it somebody's garage? 
Yeah. And there's almost, they struggle with the continuity of the feel of the film in both terms of the dialogue and sort of production quality. But I, th- I think it's, I mean, we're jumping ahead here to effects. It's, you, you, you come away not knowing what is intentional and what isn't. Had they run out of money or was it always intended to look like that, that scene? It's a, it's a very, very strange Interesting. movie. Yeah. Interesting movie. <laughs> Interesting. And again, I mean, I've, I've, I mean, I've got some more notes here. The amount of ideas. Everybody's called John. John Yaya, John Parrot, yeah. John Smallberries, John Many Jars. And, you know, when they call for the Blue Blaze Irregulars, and then uh, I think it's Perfect Tommy mentions the Colotney Brothers and the Rug Suckers. There's just so many ideas in this. And you just think, I want to hear... Well, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, obviously... You know, Angela, you might have, you know, my, your mileage may vary, but <laughs> you, I, I find myself thinking, I want to know more about these different groups. I want to know where they advertise for Blue Brazy regulars, because if you get a, a small kid with a machine gun turn up, I want to know where they put that advert for that kid. <laughs> it's not about what you t- what, It's very cool. It's great. But it's like, so how do you become a Blue Brazy regular? Uh, who is... in the right mind would give a kid a machine gun? <laughs> if they'd have looked at the script a little bit more in terms of who are we aiming this at, are they actually going to know what the hell is going off? Instead of going, you know what, we've got all these ideas, it'll be crazy, it'll be amazing. And it is in a way, but it's just not discernible. It's, no. it's just hard to work out what what sort of a film this is. Yeah. I, mean, I think got, there are I'll... two lines in the dialogue that actually sum it up. And it's in the club scene uh, when they stop playing because of Penny crying and then Buckaroo starts playing a song for her. And one of the guys says, this is weird. And the other one, yeah. sure is. Yeah, perfect, Tommy. Yeah. I see, you see, that? I, I love that. I love the fact that he just gives Banzai this sixth sense that in this club full of people, he just instinctively knows that someone out there is just not enjoying themselves and everything stops for it. Yeah. I, it's ridiculous. If you've actually been in a small club like that or dive bar where they're playing music loudly, you would not, from the stage, see somebody sniffling. Yeah, but like I said, it's Banzai. This guy can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. It's got me hyped for the sequel novel. So, as I said, I'll be on that straight away after this podcast. I mean, Roach also worked with uh, like Moonstone Comics on some, uh, you know, that followed on the story. And I'm, I'm currently trying to get hold of that trade paperback with little success. I mean, if there's anybody out there that knows where I can get a copy, please let me know. Uh, and it is so batshit. It's taken. I, I know if I know it's probably just me, but I've got such respect for Ian Roach after this. I mean, if I'm allowed to put on my fanboy cap for a minute, my fondness for this movie over the years, it's and it's not been that many years. It's seen me adding wanting to meet and have a conversation with Roach to my bucket list because I just want to know how his mind works. I would listen to the commentary on the Blu-ray before you agree to meet him. That's all I'm oh. going to say. Throwing oh, that dear. <laughs> Is this a case of never meet your heroes type thing? He's, uh, you, 
yeah, maybe. It just is just a little bit uh, acute, I suppose. Is ah. it? It's just a and very the, interesting commentary I found. As the story goes, I can see uh, how some how some people just find it impenetrable, for want of or a better implausible. Word. Well, yeah, but I mean, that was never out. As soon as somebody goes through a mountain in a car, it kind of puts yeah, it in that territory anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do, do you either of you guys have anything else, Tad, with regards to the writing? Um, no, I think we're all gone. Sorry, after you, Angela. Well, I was going to say, going back to that bit with the club scene, okay, so Bookaroo's got this kind of sixth sense about people uh, not enjoying themselves, but Back then, or any time, would any lone female spill their guts to a room full of people about what's going wrong in their life? I don't uh, think many would. No, but I, I, I kind of just have, I lump that in with my suspension of disbelief as far as everything else goes in this. You know, I, I, yeah. I just kind of, yeah, I'm on board with it. And I think that's... I think that's why some people love it and some people hate it because some people just think that's just stupid and others are laying on me. Give me as much crazy as you can possibly give me. And I think yeah. in that respect, this movie goes gangbusters. So calling that music hard rocking, that's one of the uh, least believable things in the thing as well. That's fair enough. I mean, uh, but it is, you know, it is early 80s and the guy is dressed as Matt Smith, Doctor Who, so. Yeah, but even by 80s standard, that was nowhere near hard rocking. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, that'll lead us into direction. I mean, it's W.D. Richter. He was the, uh, the writer of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, the uh, adaptation of Stephen King's Needful Things and the Frank Langella adaptation of Dracula. So, and this, as far as I can tell, this is one of the only uh, movies that he directed, the other one being something called Late for Dinner. I mean, do you guys have any views on the, uh, on the direction? I mean, I like it's played seriously. Every actor seems to kind of take the script seriously, regardless of what they end up doing with it. And did you did you seem to uh, to have fun? And I think, as I say, it, it does it without any knowing winks to the audience. They don't. I mean, yes, they ham it up a lot, but they don't give that kind of carry on nod to the audience. And I think that kind of works in the movie's favour. What do you guys think? I just think it, it's it's like the plot, the direction. I think it's again. I I think when you. And I'm no actor, I don't know, but I imagine when you're starring in a film, you're doing things and you're having a great time. Do you ever actually pause to say, hold on a minute, last scene I was this. This scene now I'm it, it's totally not quite the same. It I'd, again, lots of great moments, but overall, does it hang together well? Not particularly. I think the way some of it's shot is still great. Um but overall, I think if it was, if direction was a little bit tighter and better, it would, it would probably have a bigger audience than it does because there is that much to like in this film. But I think it, 
it's far from a perfect film, that's for sure, in my opinion. That's fair. That's, I think that's a fair enough assessment. What about you, Ange? Um, like you say, there, there are bits that do seem more slick than others, uh, that have maybe had more time taken on them to get the shots right. For example, at the beginning in the desert. Uh, yes, you can see money's been thrown at the club scene uh, with how they've kitted out the sets. And that, again, does have a slick appearance to the production. But then you've got the other bits. I, there do seem to be a lot of polar opposites in a lot of the film, from the um, acting, the direction. It, yeah, it's, it's hard to put it into words. It, it just seems like a whole mishmash. You've got one lot that's good, another batch that's really bad, and they've sort of just tried to stitch it together as best they can. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I've, I mean, I've got to say it at some point, and yeah, again, your mileage may vary, but I do think this these have the this movie has the best end credit sequence ever. Hmm. You <laughs> disagree on that point. <laughs> <laughs> That's very enough. So, on to effect. Oh, go on. Sorry, Angela. No, I was going to say, you're on about the bit where they're walking down the spillway. I am, yes. Yeah. I love so, it. That did seem to suggest greatly that there was going to be another film coming out. And I was like, hmm. After watching all that, would I actually be tempted to watch a second film? Um, in my case, no. That's, that's fair enough. I mean, you're... I'm going on to FX now and the design of the thing. I, uh, Angela, you will be surprised to know that uh, the costumes were designed by Aggie Guerrero Rogers, who also did the costumes for American Graffiti and Return of the Jedi. Not that you believe it. Uh, well, some of the outfits, I mean, you could see that some outfits had, had some care taken into them there's the uh the white jacket with the shoulder pads that was very 80s very electro pop um then yeah the costumes for the aliens they they did look like they'd had work put into them but unfortunately not enough work had been put into the prosthetics you know they all look very rubbery I've, I've, I don't know if it's just because of my love of B-movies and the whole Mystery Science Theatre thing, but I, I actually like that. And I, and I will say, I do like the fact that the actors under these prosthetics, for the most part, are so good that you can still pick up their performance with these, you know, boggle-eyed masks on. Well, I, I did mask say earlier, was... with the masks on, you can tell which actor is which. Just from the mannerisms, there were there wasn't give in that, but it just didn't look right. But maybe that's with me looking at it with a modern TV compared to when it was made. A lot of the things that you wouldn't necessarily have seen on the old sets, where you actually had to get off your uh, couch and press the buttons to change the channels. I'm talking that kind of age. Yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't have noticed uh, a lot of these things 
with the sets, with the costumes. It would all look brilliant back then. But so you think the it, an HD version it from the twenty twenties? It's just like, ooh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so you think an HD is detrimental to this movie? Yeah. Definitely. To That's be honest, my, one of my most beloved films, Star Wars, as you know. Nowadays, watching that on the current TV, I'm like, oh, I can see too many joins. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, the production designer on this was J. Michael Reaver. I do like a lot of things about it. I like the organic design of the ships, which not a lot of people were doing back then. Uh, you know, I think they were based on shells, etc. I like the cobbled mm. together aspect. I mean, Richter's on uh, record as saying that he wanted it to look like, you know, these things have been repaired and repaired and repaired and people adding their own things to them. I like, I like that. I like a lot of the design aesthetic. I, I mean, you've seen your fair share of uh, tour buses, I would imagine, over the years, Angela. I've but... actually only been on one. Oh, really? Did Yeah, but did it have a, a World Watch 1 centre and a dojo? It most certainly did not. In fact, that was one of the notes I'd made. Having been on a tour bus, seeing, knowing what the dimensions are like inside, and it was a double-decker tour bus as well, there is no way in hell you would fit all of that shit in there. I'd still be able to move. That's fair enough. It's just like, no. Yeah, it's... The, it must have been made with Time Lord technology, is all I can say. <laughs> it does have that Tesseract feeling about it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just, yeah, there, there is too much in that bus for it, you know, to, to be able to move. <laughs> Nigel, do you have any views on the uh, on the design of the thing? <clears throat> Not just the bus, but the look of the yeah. movie. I think the costume designer, I, um, I know he came from Return of the Jedi, and I, I think he must have had some sort of big night where he got drunk on the set of Jabba's Palace. <laughs> He said with ideas, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to implement some of this on this next film. Um, from what I can glean from the Blu-ray, there's a lot of the actors had quite a lot of sway in terms of what they actually wore. So I think they pulled some of that together themselves, but it just costume design overall. The aliens go, This one's wearing a feather. And you're like, oh, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, eighth yeah. dimension. All wanna wear feathers, clearly. I think costume design is, yeah, is not great. It doesn't do anything for me. I don't see an overriding theme other than it's very 80s, and it really is. Um, but in terms of overall uh, sort of SFX design and stuff, the ships are absolutely gorgeous. They, they look fantastic, and I think it looks the Blu-ray looks terrific on the screen for me when you're looking at the SFX, the rotoscoping and so on. It, it really stands up well, I feel. But I know when it came to some of the, the alien costumes, they had sort of two tiers of costumes that they do in many films in which the sort of top tier, the, the masks and the prosthetics were done in such a way and time was spent applying them to the actor so you could tell exactly who is under the mask. And everyone else, it was kind of, hey, fella, chuck this on your head and stand over there at the back. <laughs> and that yeah. was a little detail put to that. She just couldn't glean who it was on there. But I, I'm not a fan of the look of the aliens. It certainly the, the way they dress just frustrates me. It's like, why are you wearing this? Do you wear that in the eighth dimension? What is going off? What? I, I don't know. I, I didn't get that at all. Uh, but I think the look of 
like I said, the ships and the actual set design, the, the attention to detail in the sets on this film in small parts, some of the scribblings on the walls, it, it, it just, if you happen to pause your film, clearly because you've got nothing better to do with your life other than freeze-framing <laughs> films and looking at detail on walls, there's some crazy stuff on there that's really funny. And they just, again, like you said earlier, they look like they were having a blast in terms of that. And it's again, yeah. it makes the film more interesting for that. Nice one. Which, I mean, this this brings us, you know, again, on design, but we're going into sound design. Now, the music supervisor, sound designer on this, works on, he's worked on such things, uh, I'll give you, uh, Bones Howe, uh, he's worked on things like Serial Mom, Ghosts of Mars, Back to the Future, and uh, Michael Bodica, who did the soundtrack, he's been a synthesizer artist on things like Moonraker, Outland, Emperor's New Groove, Villeneuve's Dune, so how... You know, do you have any notes on the sound design and soundtrack, that kind of thing? I know, I, th I think you've got yes. some notes on this, yeah, Nigel? I hate the music in this film. <laughs> I, I just, it just doesn't work for me. I love electronic scores. Anything Carpenter, Alan Howarth, Tangerine Dream, I absolutely love them. This is like the rest of the film. There are so many scenes that I go, this really isn't the right tone for the music in this scene. And it kind of pulls me out of that scene. Yeah. It just doesn't land for me. End title sequence and the music on that, I, I kind of enjoy, but it's almost it's almost separate to the film. That whole end title sequence is almost separate to the rest of the film in a way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the score really... I don't enjoy the score. It's not something I could ever listen to, you know, outside of the film. That's fair enough. Angela, anything? Uh, I would actually agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, the end title music was the best bit from the entire film. The rest yeah. of it didn't settle. It, it, it was jarring. So I just tried to tune it out Uh as it was going through, it's like, okay, we'll just concentrate on the dialogue and the visuals. That's, that's, uh, yeah, I think that's fair enough. I'm, you know, I think we're all in agreement with regards to that. The, uh, the end credit sequence, the music goes very well with the end credit sequence, but it's not that memorable for the rest of it. I mean, I don't know if I just subconsciously tuned it out. But it's not one of the great soundtracks by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I, I imagine that none of us could could actually remember any of the music in the film apart from the entire sequence. It is one of those, it's just not memorable. I think that's fair enough. The only time I did recognise any motifs throughout the film were motifs that were used in that end title sequence. Yeah, yeah. I, I think some. I think at one point, someone in the compound was playing that track on a piano. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, it's not really something that that stuck with me. So I think we'll move on from uh, from sound design. Uh, that's pretty much the specific specifics. I mean, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything you think we've not covered, or anything you think that warrants attention that we've not brought up? 
not on those topics. I mean, I was looking into things on a more detailed level. Once it got past the point where it was just too ridiculous for words, I was starting making notes of all the things that were ludicrous. Like yeah. say, um, I mean, it, it did start pretty much straight away. Although I liked the opening scene, the shape of the vehicle that it was trying to do the land record in, it basically wouldn't have had enough downforce to keep it actually on the ground if it was going at 500 miles per hour. Per hour. You know, yeah. it, it would just break apart, basically. Um, you know, stuff like that. Um, the EMP that apparently went off, but all their electronics were still working after it. <laughs> Amazing. I must not get me some of that technology. You know, so it's... <laughs> I, I think I've basically watched too many scientific things, read too many scientific book, uh, books, you know, watched too much Formula One. So I, I know things like downforce and what have you. And it's just like, yeah, this wouldn't yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think, like I said earlier, I definitely think you need to have a, a strong suspension of disbelief going into this. Yeah. I mean, I, I went in with, you know, no expectations. Despite the name, it was just like, okay. But I, I gave it a fair crack. But like I say, five minutes in, it's like, okay, this is too ludicrous even for me. And I've watched some weird shit. <laughs> well, you're a fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I, 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 I'll i be honest, I've never been able to take to that. Well, it's not for everyone. Again, it's one of those Marmite things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's... Love the, it. The, yeah, I think that's the very nature of these cult cult things. You, you know, it, it does provoke that kind of reaction in, in you. Oh, you definitely got a visceral reaction out of me, this one. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Nigel? Anything else you want to add? Or? Uh, I just think it's, for me, this is almost, this is like, if anyone's listened to this and they've never seen the film, this is essential cult movie viewing. I think this is a, a go-to film to almost test your barometer of where you're at in terms of cult movies. And it is one of the most rewatchable and find something new films you'll ever watch. I would, I would strongly recommend people go out and get the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray is fantastic that Arrow did. Um, and that's the one I've got. And I just think they always put out top-notch releases anyway, but it's a real good example of one with some of the extras on there. Um, and it is, it, listen to that commentary. You must listen to it. It's just, it's just strange. I just don't I'm, know. I'm definitely going to be doing it's that. After commentary. This. But considering yeah. when this film came out and what it was surrounded with at the time, you can understand why it didn't hit that big audience. And the film itself is confusing as hell. But for as much as they get wrong, they get a lot right. And it, it really makes it, a very very interesting film to watch if you're into that sort of cult movie style genre and it, it is essential viewing for me you have to have seen this once or twice well normally at this point we jump straight into our favorite moments from the movie and conclusions but uh, because we don't want you to get too comfortable we're going to put that to the test put your knowledge to the test once more in our second and deciding round and don't worry there's no visuals on this it's a quick fire thing it's a little game of tag. 
However, it's not like a normal game of tag, obviously. That would be uh, a little messy and interspersed with interminably prolonged periods of travelling. Uh, instead, I've got a series of taglines from some famous and some not-so-famous cult movies, some of which we may be covering in future episodes. Now, your job is to identify which movie is from the tagline alone. It's quite easy. I'll read out the tagline, and you two can buzz in whenever you wish at any point to give your answer. Buzzing in this case, however, means simply shouting out your own name. Is that clear? Yeah. Okay. So, for example, if I were to say, you'll believe a man can fly. Okay. Kaiju Superman. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Great stuff. Obviously, that was just a test, so it doesn't count. But for each correct answer you give, you score one point. You warned, however, that, again, should you buzz in and fail to answer or give an incorrect answer, your opponent then has a chance to swoop in and get that one point. The one with the highest score at the end of the round wins. All make sense? Yeah. Nice. So we'll go to the game. And, again, don't worry, just a bit of fun. Uh, my co-host and I had a bit of a problem with a couple of these, so if you don't get them, don't worry, it's, you know. So, fingers on proverbial buzzers. Ready? Question one. In space, Kaiju. no one can... Nigel. Correct. So, that's a one point for Nigel. Right. Question two. The night he came home. Kaiju. Halloween. Nigel. That's correct. Oh, my God. I'm going to shut up, Angela, I promise now. No, no, it's all right. <laughs> Question three. Part man, part machine, all cop. Robocop. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> this dude's on fire. I wrote Angel, a quiz. Just give him all oh, the no, points. I, I think <laughs> that's going to be a... <laughs> They're here to save the world. Kaiju Ghostbusters. It is Ghostbusters. <sighs> oh! Except with that, yeah. <laughs> Okay, ready for the, ready for the next one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sleep all day, party all night, never Angela, grow old. The Lost Boys. Correct. Okay, next one. Cute, clever, mischievous, intelligent, dangerous. Angela Gremlins. Correct. Oh, she's she's come back. Come back of all this. <laughs> okay. This is a bit of a follow-on from an earlier one. The night nobody came home. Nah, don't know. Angela? No, no, no. Angela? Halloween 2? It's actually Halloween 3. No, no way! <laughs> you remember Season of the Witch? Yeah, it's, it's great. <sighs> really good on a rewatch that. Yep. Watch that every Halloween. Beautiful in HD as well. Yep. Next question. Whoever wins, we lose. Angela, aliens versus predator? That's correct. Oh, you got it. I was, oh, I was just about to say that as well. Well done, Angela. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Penultimate question. They're here. Kaiju Poltergeist. Correct. And the final question. There can be only one. Angela Highlander. Go on, yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Nice one. So at the end of that round, Angela's got four and Nigel's just beaten her with five. Oh, so well done. Adding oh, that up, you. the total score, 
for the quiz. Uh, Angela's come out of it with eight in total, with Nigel on 13, which makes Nigel the winner of our inaugural Cult Classics quiz. How do you feel, buddy? Lucky. <laughs> hey, you didn't do a bad job there, mate. I did okay for being a yeah. Well, I mean, the guests on coming episodes have got a lot to live up to, so, you know, we might ask you back to defend your title at some point, if that's a meaningful oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> and what about you, Angela? I'm sorry it didn't go your way this time, but you put up a valiant fight. Yeah, um, I got more right than I expected, to be honest, so I'm quite pleased with that. Nice. Well, you'll always be welcome back for a future episode, if you want to. We shall so, see. Yep. Now that drama's over with. It's time to get back to the movie you both came here to discuss. Now I'm going to go around and ask your favourite character, moment or scene and line from the movie. And then before we get to our conclusions and score, we'll have a look and see what the audience have to say. So uh, first off, we'll go for favourite character. And on this, we'll start with Angela, then go to Nigel and finally myself. So Angela, first up, who's your favourite character in this and why? Oh. That you see, that's really, really, really difficult to choose. Um, <laughs> I would say New Jersey, Jeff Goldblum, because well, Jeff Goldblum. That's yeah, I think that's a fair answer, Nigel. Peter Weller, I think he's, I think he's fantastic in everything he does, and he's considering what he's got to work with in this. I think he's he's top draw in this. He really is. That's fair enough. I mean, this one was a toss-up for me. I love Lloyd's John Big Boutet because we've all been in a situation we've got a boss that's a complete jag-off and our patience gets less and less as time goes on. But I think in this case, I'm going to have to agree with Angela and go with New Jersey. He's almost an audience point of view character in that he joins this thing. He's utterly bewildered. But if you just give in to the madness, you're kind of part of the team, as it were. So... Uh, yeah, next up, favourite scene. Do you have a favourite scene or moment, Angela? Oh, um, come back to me. I'll have a think on that. That's fair enough. Uh, Nigel? Um, I think a couple of bits. There's, there's, like I said, there's so many bits. I love the uh, the car scene at the beginning. I think that's done really well. The, the, the one bit that always makes me go, wow, is... Is just the first time you see the starships orbiting Earth. The design is so distinct; it looks so good on the screen. I, I, I love that part. And then there's a quirky bit. There's the part where, towards the end, he has the president that's asking him about uh, to make a decision, and he answers yes on one, no on two, and no on two is is it nuking Russia or something? Yeah, <laughs> shall we destroy Russia or not bother? Yeah, and he has two questions. He was yes on one, no on two. <laughs> just, and then the guy who's on the actual radio kind of goes, can I just clarify which, which of those are? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, Angela, you thought of one yet? Um, yeah, there were a, a couple of ones that, you know, it's kind of a tie. I like the um, site wards with all the books piled everywhere. It kind of made me feel at home. Because I am one of those people that has just a massive to be read pile, or piles <laughs> rather. So, yeah, I like that one. But also, where um, Banzai, when he's trying to pass on the electrochemical um, formula by licking his hand and going, oh, sticking it on, it on uh, the uh, uh, forehead. forehead, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a decent one. Yeah. Uh, I think, I'm, I mean, it's probably unexpected, but I think I'm going to have to go with that press conference towards the beginning. Uh, you know, from the scientific mm -hmm. explanation up to the yeah. discovery of the electrodes. Up until that point, mm -hmm. it seems a relatively straightforward 80s sci-fi flick. And then it just goes gonzo. Mm. Yeah, what was Penny to... doing on the table? Exactly. It just, you know. But, yeah, that's a question for another time. So we're on to his favourite line now. So, uh, Angela, you got a favourite line? Oh, um, yeah, again, come back to me. Okay. Uh, Nigel, I think why I know me? which one you've got. Why me? Because you're perfect, is, I think, yeah. is my favourite line on that. Yeah, we're going to have to agree on that one. That's the one I've got. I think that was, and he's so well delivered as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the guy just goes, yeah. <laughs> just, yeah it's a fair point. Nothing you can say after that. Nice one. So, any any yeah. uh, thoughts, Angela? Yeah. Um, I've been ionised, but I'm okay now. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> nice one. Well, uh, as I said before, we, we'll go to the conclusions in a minute, but prior to that, we'll take a look at uh, what the audience said. Now, as usual, we ask listeners and those on social media what they thought of the movie, and this is where things get a bit bit interesting. Now, first of all, we put out a poll on Twitter asking people's opinions on the movie, ranging from one to four stars, one being the worst for the best. The final result was a straight split down the line between three and four stars, 50-50. So it seems it is liked by those that took time to vote, even if the sample size wasn't huge. You know, it's, it, it is kind of a the definition of a cult movie with people, you know, going straight down one side or the other. Now, Jeff on Twitter at uh, dog, oh, crikey, at dog food for chair replied to my asking if there are any blue blazer regulars out there with Always, back in my fencing days, since our class was unaffiliated with any official groups, I had the patch on my jacket shoulder. I asked him if anyone picked up on the reference, to which he replied, nope. And since I'm an engineer in New Jersey, I've, I've got multiple people asking, is that where you work? When I wear my Yo-Yo Dine t-shirt, even though it says, laugh while you can, monkey boy, on the back. So <laughs> there's a man who's... Uh, who's got his priorities straight. He also put another one out because uh, Mike put a post up uh, and in which he says, I love it, but I don't think I did the first time. It grew on me a lot, which is, I think, what me and Nigel's been saying all the way through. Uh, at Skymarad says, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I've only watched it relatively recently, and I certainly appreciate its originality and more unusual elements, but I don't really feel all the wild enthusiasm others seem to feel. I suspect it's a bit of a grower. Which is funny is the very next comment on the list at Kathy's Catra says it took a while for it to grow on me, but it's a riot. So uh Glenn on Facebook says on its release I was really looking forward to watching it. And after seeing it, felt pressured to say I loved it and I really wanted to. But for me there was something missing. I know people's gonna hate me for saying this, but I thought Peter Weller was totally miscast, not nearly cool enough to play such a cool character. The timing seemed to be off in its pacing. And after re-watching the remastered version, I liked it even less. But then again, I'm the only person I know who doesn't like the Goonies. So, yeah. Is that the Glenn that I know? I believe it is, yes. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. So uh, he seems to be on uh, on the same page as you. Yep. Yeah. Our own Mike says, oh, God, you're going to love this one, Angela. The film equivalent of I Guess You Had to Be There. Too Unfunny to be a Comedy. 
too ridiculous to be anything else. Awful performances, creature effects out of a Saturday Night Live sketch and direction so camp a row of tents would applaud. I'm glad if you like it, have fun. It's not for me. I mean, don't hold back, fella. Say what you feel. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think while I'm going through this, I think in a first for the Silver Screen podcast, I'm going to have to award my co-host with the uh, Hot Take Award. So congratulations, Mike. I'm sure it'll be the first of many where these cult episodes are concerned. Uh, I do have to say, though, that in response to his own views on the movie, he sent me a link to a review on IMDb that offers a counterpoint, and that's kind of putting it mildly. It's uh, it's too long to go into here, but if you look for the review Get Over It Junior Eberts by Sober underscore Gaijin, it, it really is something to behold. Anyway, back to Twitter, at Cody922 says, one of my absolute favourites, best end credits of all time. Thank you, Cody. Nice to see somebody agreeing with me. Uh, at Meander061 says, epic parody of pulp sci-fi, very Doc Savage stuff, polymath hero adventurer with cast of quirky, capable buddies fight off the evil plans of the dastardly villain. At MM underscore Spectra says, I wish I liked it and I'm upset that I don't. I think that's an issue a lot have with this movie, to be honest. Mm -hmm. As uh, at All News Sucks, or is that SUX? Is that Robocop reference? Uh, East states great sci-fi comedy, but no question, it's absolutely insane, and I understand if it's not to everyone's taste. Personally, I really like it. While at Final Girl Hannah says, uh, Bukuru Banzai is a fun movie, even though I didn't understand what was going on at any given point in time, five stars. I think on that basis alone, I'm going to have to award a second Hot Take Award to Hannah, not because she said anything controversial as such, but simply because she summed up so succinctly what it's like to watch this and why so many of us love it. So well done on that, Hannah. So, yeah, uh, a wide variety of responses there, which is almost, you know, always nice to see. I wanted to personally give a big thank you to everyone who took time out to participate in this episode's audience section. It's more than we've had recently and certainly more than we've had in our sister podcast in recent times. Going forward, especially on these cult episodes, we'd like a diverse range of voices and anyone's more than welcome to join in, whether it be writing, audio clips, video clips, artwork, hell, interpretive dance is fine if you want to express yourself in that manner. We put a lot of work into the podcast and it means a lot when the audience joins in. So please, if you've got any thoughts about today's or any episode, write in, you know, tell us what you think, join in. We want you in our club, so to speak, and we always appreciate your opinions. So, yeah, that's what our audience thinks. So now it's time to find out what we here think of the movie as we go to the conclusions. And as we did with the favorite moment. We'll go around, beginning with Angela, followed by Nigel, and then myself. So, Angela, what are your final thoughts on this movie? Can you give me your conclusion and score out of five for Buckaroo Banzai, please? Batshit crazy. Two. Two. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> A little shorter than most reviews, but, yeah, you summed it up. And over to you, Nigel. I just think it's – I think we've already said if it's – if you enjoy any sort of geeky movies, sci-fi movies, this is one that you owe it to yourself to to watch it at least once. And if you've got the time and the inclination, more than once, because I think it will just grow and grow the more you watch it. And I think you'll just get more from it every time you sit and watch it. It's not perfect. It is far from it. But it's one that you can return to an awful lot and I think you'll just really enjoy it. So I'd, 
I'd probably give it probably three and a half, four, something like that. Where would you sit, honestly? Between a three and a four. So you're going to go three point five? Yeah, three, three and a half. Yeah. All right, fair enough, mate. Right, I'll give mine. It's a, uh, it's a bit of a long-winded one. Sorry about this. So, uh, Clancy Brown at one point says, "I tell you, if it ain't one thing, it's another." Uh, and honestly, it pretty much sums up the experience of watching this. I came to the movie late, well into the 2000s, and until I saw it, it had always been a curiosity. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai is a difficult one to place. The director, W.D. Richter, was right in that it's a movie that you can either love or loathe. If you fall into the uh, latter group, I do get it. I can understand perfectly why some don't like it. The pacing's a little off. The performances sometimes feel as though the actors studied at the William Shatner School of Acting, and the special effects in some places do look as though they were designed in the Blue Peter studio. It all seems a little make-do-and-mend, but you know what? I just don't care. Every time I watch this, I'm reminded just how much fun it is, and I love it a little bit more. Objectively, I know it's not the best movie ever made. The plot is so wild as to be incomprehensible to many, including those that worked on it, and yet my mind pieces it together with the effortless simplicity of a child playing with action figures. And it's that feeling that this movie invokes in me. It's just a damn good adventure held together by those playing with the characters. The actors, and there are some damn good ones here, if we've seen them from their careers since, all look like they had a blast making it. And that just leaps off the screen to me. The mythology of this polymath and his group of misfits has me hooked. As Mike said, it's very much a personal take with this movie. You have to be in on it. And while I can't claim to know every intricacy on this mythos, I am all in on this thing. It's more than its fair share of detractors, but sorry, folks, I just adore every minute of this movie unequivocally. And I honestly can't wait to start on the sequel after this podcast. And I've given it four out of five. So, working that out gives Bukuru Banzai a score of 3.16 recurring, which I'm going to round down to three. I think that pretty much sums up, you know, everybody's taking into account everybody's assessment of the movie, really. I mean, what about you guys? you think that's fair, all things considered? It, it is. I would it's say, just... yeah, it's right in the middle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Nice one. So uh, there you have it. Once again, you've heard our thoughts. What are yours? Agree, disagree? Let us know below on YouTube or on our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd accounts. Links are in the description. If you enjoyed listening, then please like, subscribe, and tell your friends about us. And if you've got anything you'd like to share, then do not hesitate to get in touch. We want you to feel this show is as much yours as it is ours, so please drop us a line. We want your input. We want to fill these spaces with your, the listeners' voices. If you want to talk movies or you have a suggestion about what movie we could cover next or even what features we could include, we welcome them wholeheartedly. Also, the Silver Screen Podcast is still proud to be part of the uh, the network promoting the What Choice fundraiser to protect choice and bodily autonomy. Once again, the link will be in the description. So if the right to choose is important to you, please follow the URL and give whatever you can or share the campaign. Our next episode will be uh, sticking with the cult vibe as we cross over with the Big Screen Podcast. Mike and I will be joining Will Templar and Theo Stokes as we take a look back at the classic 1982 carpenter horror, The Thing. And that will be followed just in time for Halloween by a very special episode where we're joined by YouTube horror streamers Freddy and Purgatory 
as we discuss our top 10 horror movies of all time. It's going to be a great episode, seriously. So tell your friends, grab your popcorn, and see if your favourites are on the list. Besides, I'm sure it's going to be raining this Halloween, so it's best to just stay in, get stuck into that pile of candy, and listen along with us. So all that's left to say now is a big thank you to our guest today for appearing on the show. Did you both enjoy your time here today? It was great fun, yes. Yeah, I had an absolute blast, buddy. Thank you for that. Nice one. Not a problem. Glad you had a good time. Uh, thank you for joining us, Angela. I mean, I know the subject matter wasn't your favourite, but I'm glad you had a good time. Uh, can Do you have anything that you'd like to promote or plug? Can the listeners reach you anywhere? It's, it's you know, is there anything you want to... Yeah, they can follow me on Instagram at Clockwork Angela. And if anybody has a, a similar interest in a certain German band, you can also follow me on Twitter at Rammstein for Immer. <laughs> nice one. Well, I'll put the uh, I'll put the links in the description. And uh, how about you, Nigel? Big thank you to you. Anything you'd like to put to put there for the audience to check out? No, not just yet. It's uh, let's say work in progress. Ooh, nice, intriguing. Well, uh, as usual, I can be found on Twitter and Letterbox. Links in the description. So once again, a big thank you to the guests for graciously sitting through and reliving their trauma with me today. And uh, also a very big thank you to the listeners out there. Hope you had a good time. If so, please, again, once again, like, subscribe and share. And we hope to see you next time. And until then, remember, no matter where you go, there you are. There you are. You have been listening to the Silver Screen Podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Behind-the-scenes sections and additional material produced by DK. Music by Timeless Journey. More information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash timelessjourney. Follow the podcast on Twitter at podcast underscore screen, on Instagram at Silver Screen Podcast, or look for the Silver Screen Podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen, Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast Production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening.